0: When it comes to the most secretive, repressive nations on earth, you know, China, North Korea, Russia, there's a specific type of expert that reporters like to pay attention to. We call them watchers. They know how to decipher the official communications and cut through the propaganda to figure out what's really going on. And a little over a week ago, those watchers keeping an eye on Russia couldn't believe what they were seeing.
1: ...historic developments raising serious questions about President Vladimir Putin's grip on power inside Russia. Putin is accusing the Wagner mercenary group of an armed rebellion.
0: In a matter of hours, that insurrection had moved in from Ukraine and was heading straight toward the Russian seat of power. It does appear that this column of Wagner, we don't know how big they are, but they appear to be moving towards uh, the Russian
1: capital, Moscow. In a rapidly changing story today, it may have come full circle. Wagner boss Yevgeny Prigozhin has now published a new audio recording claiming that he is turning his forces around from a march toward Moscow.
0: Almost as quickly as it all started, it was over. So as the dust settles on the greatest challenge to Vladimir Putin since he took power 23 years ago, those same Russia watchers are asking, who is still on Putin's side? My guest this week is one of the few Western journalists on the ground in Moscow, CNN senior international correspondent, Matthew Chance. We're going to talk about possible payback from the Kremlin and if the mood on the streets is about to shift. From CNN, this is one thing. I'm David Ryan. Matthew, we're speaking on Thursday evening Moscow time, and it's been a few days now since this bizarre, quick-moving rebellion came and went. I know you quickly moved into Moscow from Ukraine when this was all happening. What is the mood out on the streets of the Russian capital right now?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I just... um... I'd just been in Russia. I'd just come from Moscow to oh. to go to Ukraine. So it took me a couple of days to get there. You know, it's not, it's not easy, as you can imagine, getting from Russia to Ukraine in the current circumstances. Mm. So I'd only just really got there when this happened, and I had to sort of turn around sort of the next, the next morning and, and, and head straight back again, which took me another two days to get back. And by the time I got here, I mean, it was, I wouldn't say it was all over, but the, the military uprising that we thought was going to, you know, really threaten You know, that the Russian capital had come to an end. And so there was an enormous sense of relief when I got to Moscow that more bloodshed had been avoided. I mean, hmm. all bloodshed hadn't been avoided. There were people who were killed, particularly pilots in the Russian Air Force who had been shot down by Wagner forces as they approached the Russian capital. But there was relief that there wasn't a massive confrontation on the streets of Moscow. You speak English, right? Yeah. Great. Let, let me ask you. What, what do you think about Yevgeny Prigozhin? Yevgeny
0: Prigozhin. No, we like it.
1: <laughs> you, you, you do like or you don't? No, no. You don't like?
0: No, we don't like him.
1: Why? Pitch more.
0: I don't know. But, but he, he is not good.
1: <laughs> but I think that relief was also coupled, and you're still feeling this today, with a real sense of anxiety about what this all means. Uh, I was trying to get into Red Square, actually, which is is just here, but you can see there are barricades up. and fact... You know, what would Putin do in order to shore up his power in the in the weeks and in the days ahead? You don't know an answer. Not many people want to speak to me about Putin. And I think more importantly... You know what? What does this mean for the future of the country? And now that had been challenged, you know, there is a sense in which he looked weak, and there's anxiety that there may be more challenges, more threats of violence in the future.
0: I know this seemed to catch a lot of people off guard, but there's been a lot of reporting in recent days. Do we know who knew about this beforehand?
1: Yeah, there is a a lot of reporting about it, but. You know, none of it is the sort of reporting that we say, yes, this is absolutely confirmed. We exactly know that this is what's happened. Um, there's been word coming from you know US officials and Western security officials and things like that, that elements of the Russian military may have had you know forward warning that Yevgeny Prigozhin was going to try something. The implication being that they they knew about it, they they didn't act quickly enough and sort of allowed it to happen perhaps sitting on the fence a little bit to see what would come of it certainly i think that's the interpretation that the kremlin has taken towards these reports that some people may have known in advance you know the kremlin is seeing that as you know divided loyalties disloyalty in fact Mm. and i think that for that reason uh, we may be seeing the start of the kremlin cleaning up house you know, uh, embarking on a purge mm. of people it perceives to be not as loyal as they would want them to be.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask about retaliation, because we do know past opponents of Vladimir Putin have a history of, you know, being disappeared, for lack of a better word, right? Yeah,
1: they do, um, you know, disappear, they get poisoned, they get jailed, they get exiled, they get killed, you know, and, and, and I think that, you know, uh, uh, when it comes to Yevgeny Prigozhin who Vladimir Putin has made no secret about the fact that he regards as a, as a traitor at this point.
0: Civil society
1: showed that any blackmail and attempts to organise an internal mutiny will end in defeat. The armed rebellion would have been suppressed anyway. Now, all, all the jokes apply about not standing close to windows and uh, not drinking cups of tea that are offered to him by officials. <laughs> but, you know, seriously, I think there is you know, a real concern or a real sense. I'm not sure who's concerned for him, but there's a real sense that it's not clear what security guarantees Yevgeny Prigozhin has, uh, particularly because he's been offered and has accepted exile in the neighboring country of Belarus. I mean, of all, of all countries to, to think you're going to get safe haven in. And the leader I mean, of that country is a friend of Putin. Oh, it's a, it's a, it's a friend of Putin. Um, it's obedient to Putin more importantly, Putin pulls all the levers there. The president of Belarus, Alexander Lukashenko, is basically completely dependent on Putin to stay in power. And so he does, I think, more or less, exactly what Putin wants. And so, you know, in that environment, it's difficult to see how someone like Yevgeny Prigozhin, if the Kremlin wants to get at him, will be able to get at him.
0: Why did Prigozhin do this? Because we know he's been unhappy with the military leadership and he goes on Telegram every other day and swears up and down and yells. But this was such a dramatic step. Did he think it was going to work?
1: I I don't know. I mean, he's a very impulsive guy, is the impression that I get. I mean, he may have had a plan, but I think he's also kind of spends a lot of his time being utterly furious. That's the That's the impression you get from his various Telegram posts and the the stuff he posts on on social media. Remember, it was on Friday that this rebellion began, almost straight after Prigozhin said that there'd been a deadly attack on a Wagner military base in Ukraine. Not an attack by the Ukrainians, but an attack by the Russian military. And it was that, whether it's true or not, and we don't know whether it's true or not, but there pictures of a sort of damaged-looking camp it was that that provided the immediate spark that that caused um, Yevgeny Prigozhin to launch this military uprising. Two factors
0: played into my decision to turn around. First factor, we wanted to avoid a Russian bloodshed. Second is, we marched in demonstration of a protest not to overturn the power in the country.
1: He called it a march for justice. He vowed that he was going to basically take hold of physically uh, the defense minister of Russia, Sergei Shoigu, and the Russian defense of, you know, chief of the defense staff, Valery uh, Gerasimov, um, and sort of bring them to justice is what, is what he wanted to do. Mm. It was obvious that at
0: the moment, a lot of blood would be shed. Therefore, we felt that demonstrating what we were going to do was sufficient.
1: But of course, the, 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 the background to that is that uh, Prigozhin and Shoigu and Gerasimov have been e- at each other's throats for the past year or so. Over, right, this
0: hasn't been going well for Russia.
1: No, and, and, and that's the other sort of point of conflict between you know, the, the, the military high command and, and Prigozhin and his Wagner fighters. I mean, it has been a bloodbath for Russian forces, including the Russian mercenaries inside Ukraine, particularly in Bakhmut, where Wagner has been doing the majority of the fighting. You know, it's called a meat grinder there for a reason. I mean, tens of thousands of people on both sides have been killed and injured. It's enough to leave anybody traumatized, frankly. And I mean, we all remember the scenes of Prigozhin standing in front of a heap of bodies, blown to pieces, his own Wagner fighters, you know, ranting at Shoigu and Gerasimov, saying he holds them responsible. Right. And, you know, the funny thing is, I think, is that I think that struck a chord with lots of Russian people as well. And I think... If there is any sympathy for Yevgeny Prigozhin amongst the Russian public, it's because he spoke out loud. He shouted out what many people are thinking in this country but are afraid to say out loud, Hmm. which is that this war has been going terribly. It's been mismanaged by the high command of the Russian military. And ordinary Russians fighting on the front lines have been paying the price.
0: Hmm. You've been based in Moscow for years, so you've kind of seen firsthand how Putin has, you know, expanded his power year over year. And now we have much of the West saying, yes, now Putin is weaker because of this. What does that look like in practice?
1: I think it's been a shock to everybody watching uh, Russia, uh, anybody inside Russia, about how quickly this veneer of stability that uh, Vladimir Putin carefully kind of manufactured over himself has been faded uh, and has been cracked by this small, brief military uprising. You know, it, it, it's made people think that maybe Vladimir Putin is not the only answer to the question of stability in Russia. And it ha- I think it has made him look look weakened. Now, now, where that comes from, it's unclear. I mean, perhaps it's because over the past several years, Putin has become... Increasingly distant from people, he's been sort of living a very cloistered life because of the pandemic, keeping people at arm's length, um, you know, only listening to a small coterie of advisors, and it's it's left him sort of isolated, I think. And meanwhile, the rest of the country has sort of sort of moved on as other people who have emerged as as sort of alternative power centers, like Yevgeny Prigozhin, um, and and so. I think what the Kremlin is going to try to do now and what it is already now trying to do is to reverse that process and get Putin to reengage with people and to use this military uprising, uh, instead of it being a, a sort of event showing weakness, to use it as a, a way of bringing the country back together again and to unite around Putin. Right.
0: We saw him out on the street. The people were cheering for him.
1: It was astonishing scenes, weren't they? I mean, and I have to say, not, not entirely believable in the sense that, you know, this is a, a man who's been in power for 23 years. You know, you'd think they'd have got used to him by now, but they were, they were screaming at him like it was Like the, it was
0: Barack Obama in 2008.
1: Yeah, exactly. Although I was, th- I was thinking of the Beatles, ah, yeah. actually. But yeah, yeah. It, was, it, was, it was crazy. Um, and, and, and that just sort of didn't really feel you know, very authentic, did it? But it, it did uh, do two things. First of all, it marked a sea change. In the attitude of President Putin towards ordinary people. You know, I talked about him being keeping people at arm's length throughout the pandemic. You remember the big long table? Yeah. He met world leaders at an official, I mean it's an absurdly long table that he was so paranoid about getting infected. Yeah, you know, he was literally cheek to jowl with you know kind of poor, you know, Dagestani workers in a in a in a crowd uh, in that part of Russia, you know, kind of like with them all touching him and you know. Putting his face next to theirs and taking self as extraordinary scenes. Footage surfaced at dawn showing Wagner fighters surrounding the military headquarters in the southern Russian city of Rostov. It was very reminiscent, and this is the second point, of the scenes we saw in Rostov on Dawn at the weekend. With Russians cheering, not Putin but cheering Prigozhin. Martin! 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 And I think the fact that those pictures uh, were, were so widely circulated, I, I think that really cut to the quick uh, in the Kremlin and really, really hurt them. And, and this, and I think, is a sense that was their response to it.
0: Matthew, there in Moscow, thank you so much for the perspective. Appreciate it. Thank you. One Thing is a production of CNN Audio. This episode was produced by Paula Ortiz, Aaron Matthewson, Cece Armstrong, and me, David Rind. Matt Dempsey is our production manager. Fez Jamil is our senior producer. Greg Peppers is our supervising producer. And Steve Lichtai is the executive producer of CNN Audio. Special thanks this week to Zara Ulla and David Wilkinson. If you like the show, a few ways you can let us know. You can leave a rating and a review wherever you listen. Or just tell a friend, tell a family member. Word of mouth, it still works. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next Sunday. Talk to you then.
1: I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, CNN's chief medical correspondent. This week on Chasing Life... I sit down with Giles Yeo. It is a problem of our brain influencing the hunger. So hunger is a brain scenario, even though the feeling of hunger comes from your stomach. It's a very new and provocative way of thinking about a condition that impacts more than 40% of Americans. But the thing is, this approach could have big consequences for the way that we treat obesity. Listen to Chasing Life, wherever you get your podcasts.